Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This is the second Sunday in the season of Advent. Our readings, the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. The epistle is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. And the gospel text from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. So what we have here with our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11, uh, it's going to be a very gospel-oriented text as we're going to hear the prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of God to his people about the comfort that the Lord will bring for them. So we begin the text. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. This text gets divided up in our Bible into several paragraphs, uh, just two or three verses at a time. So we're going to be breaking this up similarly here as we discuss it together. There's the opening repetition, uh, not just comfort once, but comfort twice spoken by God. So that's emphasizing it. That's certainly putting the, the force behind the word that this is truly going to happen. And it's it's God here speaking to Isaiah that Isaiah would go and speak to God's people. So God is commanding Isaiah there to speak words that will comfort his people. So to comfort is to put someone at ease. Now, it could be several different ways. It could be that they are, they are burdened, with the the guilt of their sin and so you can comfort them in that way that's really getting at the idea of forgiveness that eases that burden um, you can talk about maybe mental or emotional distress we talk this way oftentimes when we're talking about grief someone has lost something or someone that they loved and so we comfort them in their grief uh, this could fit there as well. And then you also have physical comfort, that someone is eased of of the strain and the stress that is on their body. Um, so as we look at the, the comfort that Isaiah is to bring to God's people, this is really a full and total comfort. It's not necessarily just one area of, of their well-being. But sin strikes at the whole person body and soul and damnation clearly strikes the whole person this is a total comfort that comes with the salvific word the the saving word of god himself that he has not abandoned them forever but will redeem them then verse two speak tenderly to jerusalem uh, the picture there is very much like a man wooing a, a woman. Uh, this is intimate. It's a, it shows, it marks a relationship here um, that is of significance. Cry to her. Um, this is, that's not telling Isaiah to, you know, just start crying. But rather, when you cry out, a loud call. Isaiah is to proclaim, so he's to speak tenderly, but at the same time to proclaim very clearly, very boldly, what is about to come for them. And what is that? That her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, and she has received double from Yahweh. So her warfare is ended. Warfare with who? And ultimately, this is the warfare against God. This is a prophecy about the return. Well, this is a prophecy about how Christ will save. It's about the Messiah who will deliver us. And so it is from sin, death, and the devil that Christ has set us free. And that's what this is referring to here. It's the warfare that we created against God. We started a war against the Lord. We rebelled against him in our sinful natures. Not any longer. The time is coming when our warfare will be ended. In the short term, some may like to point this to God rescuing his people from captivity. But even at that, their warfare ended when they got taken into captivity. So uh, the, the bigger picture 
definitely is in mind here. Iniquity pardoned, receiving double. Those things also point to the bigger picture. So how is our iniquity pardoned? Well, it's pardoned in Jesus. Christ dying on the cross forgives us of all of our sins. And that next line, receiving double from Yahweh's hand for her sins, the double word is really the key there. It emphasizes here that God's mercy is stronger than his wrath. We know we have a just God. We know that he punishes sinners. We know the punishment of our sin is death. But his love and his mercy and his grace are much more powerful than his wrath upon sin. And so Christ has pardoned our sins and we have received double. Another way to think about that would be not only did you receive forgiveness, you also received Christ's righteousness. You received his perfection. So you received really a twofold gift in forgiveness, not just a clean slate, but indeed Christ himself, that you may live with him forevermore. Verses 3 to 5, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Who is the voice that cries in the wilderness? from verse 3. In the short term, it's tempting to say Isaiah, but ultimately this is John the Baptist. It is why this text is paired up together with our Mark 1 reading for the day as we begin Mark's gospel. John is the one that this is talking about, the one who would make straight the path for God. That's what we'll see as we get to the gospel reading, but we're going to get to talk about it here. Um, certainly as well. So the pre preparation in the wilderness. Picture a, picture a pretty thick forest that has been really overrun on the ground level. There's, there's so much in terms of you know, weeds and thistles and thorns and just all kinds of things that have overgrown. So it would be pretty impossible to pass through there. Clear path. That's the call of the prophet, John the Baptist, is to, in this wilderness, make a clear way that people can see their Savior. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, very similar uh, kind of a statement here. Instead of winding their way through the desert, make a simple, plain path for people to get to God. Verse 4, the whole verse refers to leveling of things. Um, the valleys are filled, the mountains are made low, everything is leveled off so that, again, people can see, people can hear their Messiah. There are no obstacles in the way. Those have been removed. Those have been taken out of the path. Verse 5, the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. This is a reference to Jesus Christ and him crucified. The revelation of the glory of Jesus. I mean, yes, it's tempting to talk about Christmas there. Or even the incarnation. But really, uh, pointing us forward to epiphany is probably the better way to do it. Uh, the season where we are thankful that God has revealed his good news even to the nations, even to us. And so here we have Jesus Christ crucified as the glory of God revealed to us. And all flesh shall see it together. And that's, that's a twofold thing. All flesh shall see the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, the promise in the New Testament that every nation will hear the good news about Jesus, who he is what he has done for, for us, for them. But also, uh, the second part of that is the second coming of Christ. Uh, when he returns, all flesh will see him. Everyone. I can't tell you how that's going to happen. We, we joked about it in confirmation class that it's going to be like God, as he, he comes back, is going to unfold the earth and he's going to turn it inside out so everybody's facing together at the same time. 
I don't know. God is God and he can do as he pleases. And he has told us that when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Unfortunately for many of them in that moment, it is not a moment of repentance, um, but a moment of judgment. As we look at verse 6 through 8, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Great promise there at the end. So here in verse 6, a little more specifically, as God instructs Isaiah to cry, Isaiah asks, well, what shall I cry? So what are the words of the prophecy Isaiah is being given to speak? And we get them here. The rest of verse 6 and moving forward is what Isaiah is to speak to the people. We get a couple of analogies. All flesh is grass. So we picture grass, which is green. It grows nice in the spring. And then what happens? As the summer heat comes, it dries it up, it turns brown, it starts to die. Or as winter sets upon us, you know, it, it dies, it fades, it goes away. That's the picture of all flesh. While we might think that we have this life that is great and never ends, well, really, our sinful flesh is dying. We just haven't noticed it yet. Or maybe you have noticed it, but... The bigger picture of things here. The world hasn't noticed that they're dying. They're hiding from that idea, that reality, as best as they can. Which is why you see so much fear when death ends up staring the world in the face, whether it's an individual in a given moment or a global pandemic. The world sees death and realizes that it can't always hide from it, and it panics has no idea how to handle death. The grass withers. It dies. The second analogy is the, the beauty of a flower. You know, pick your favorite flower, whatever it is. There are some truly uh, wondrous things that God has created. And flowers are, are such a beautiful part of his creation. And yet what happens to the beauty of a flower? It fades, it withers, and it dies. And so it is with the beauty of man. You know, what we cherish as being beautiful in this world, whether it's the youthful appearance of a person or, or whatever it may be, what we cherish as beautiful in this world, it fades, it withers, and it dies. I mean, even if it's, you know, instead of, a person that you're thinking of is beautiful if it's something that's aesthetically pleasing like like a certain type of architecture in time it withers it fades and it dies the things of this world do not remain they do not abide they fall apart when yahweh blows on them with his word of law and gospel or with his holy spirit whichever way you want to look at that phrase Surely the people are, are grass. They are nothing that perishes. Verse 8 wraps up those analogies. The grass withers, the flower fades, so the things of this world do not last, but the word of our God will stand forever. Such a key promise, such a wonderful promise. The word of God endures forever. What God has promised you doesn't fade. The promise that you have in the gospel that Jesus died on the cross to forgive your sins doesn't fade. The beauty of the resurrection that you get to live for, forever with God in a paradise that he is making for you, it doesn't wither. These things endure. These things are beautiful. These are the things that we hold on to, that we cling to every day of our lives. We finish the text with 9 through 11. 
Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. The purpose of going up a high mountain is in order to proclaim. We see times where Jesus in the New Testament will even go up on the mount. For example, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, in order that the crowds are better able to see and hear his proclamation. So elsewhere, I think in Scripture, we see it proclaimed from the housetops, the rooftops. So, you know, the the, the purpose here is, is easy to see. Uh, go up the high mountain to proclaim this good news, um, being called heralds of good news, so bringers of good news. Zion, again, is another word, uh, a synonym for Jerusalem, so the, the holy city of God where his temple dwelled. So the is this a reference to the people of God who lived in Jerusalem? Well, it is their job. God's people, including Christians today, specifically Christians today, are called to be heralds of good news. We are called to spread the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for all people, to all people. However, um, perhaps... In light of this prophecy and its context, maybe more, uh, maybe more of our focus should go on what happens in Jerusalem, as that is the location where Christ is crucified and buried and rises from the dead. Jesus himself, the good thing that he has done for his creation, being proclaimed from Zion, from Jerusalem. We are called to lift up our voice and fear not. This is something it took the disciples until Pentecost to figure out. There's a lot of fear in the disciples throughout the gospel readings. But when you get to the book of Acts and you get to chapter 2 and the, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church, everything changes. And we no longer see the disciples living life in fear. We see them very boldly doing whatever it takes to tell people about Christ and even dying for it. And in their moments of death, praying that the Lord forgives those who kill them, like Stephen. That's Acts chapter 7 as an example. Say to the cities of Judah, so this is to be proclaimed to all of God's people throughout his land. We know in the New Testament that certainly is expanded, and you see it in the Old Testament, even here in Isaiah too. Um, you see this idea that, that is for the Gentiles also. But in this prophecy, proclaim it to Judah, proclaim it to the people who are the Lord's people. And what, what do you proclaim? Well, everything that you've been given to proclaim, but... Here specifically, behold your God. Pointing, again, to Christ and his death and his resurrection. Behold, Yahweh comes, the Lord Yahweh comes with might. Now, that's an interesting phrase, because how did Yahweh come? I mean, this is what we're celebrating together in just a couple weeks' time. As we come to Christmas together, you have the, the picture of Yahweh coming as a baby, as a child. And this is called might. The strength of God does not look like the strength of men. It doesn't look like what man expects it to look like. But this is Yahweh's might. And his arm rules for him. Uh, that's a military phrase. The arm, you think of the stretched out arm that wields the sword, that strikes the blow, that wins the fight. Well, the arm that rules for God is his son Jesus, 
and he rules not by fighting flesh and blood, but by giving up his own flesh and blood. The arm that rules is the outstretched arms on the cross, Christ for us. His reward is with him. What does he have to give? No. For those who believe forgiveness and salvation, life that never ends. And also then his recompense is before him. So what does he repay? What does he give back? And that is the, the vengeance upon the violent. Those who have rejected the Lord receive what they have earned with their labor, with their sin. They receive the damnation that was not meant for them. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. But unfortunately, narrow is the way that leads to life and broad the way to destruction. Scripture certainly makes it sound like hell will be a full place. And that is something that causes the Christian in this life grief and sorrow although when we reach paradise it will not any longer which is hard for us to understand but it is a promise there will be no more suffering or tears or pain so the lord will care for us even in that way verse 11 he will tend his flock like a shepherd this is language jesus himself will use in john chapter 11 Sorry, verse, chapter 10, verse 11, and verse 14, where he says twice, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. We are his sheep. He cares for us. He feeds us. He even lays his life down for us. He will gather the lambs in his arms. That's the picture of comfort that this chapter opened with. Isaiah is to bring comfort to the people. How? By telling them of their Savior, the one who will care for them, the one who will rescue them, the one who will put an end to their war against God and instead lead them into his presence forevermore. These are the same arms that we read about before that were mighty, that rule. They now comfort he will carry them in his bosom. Uh, that's just the picture of, of being carried close. So you picture the, the parent carrying their child up against their chest. Or I think we have famously some paintings of Jesus that look like this as he's walking in a field and he's got a sheep and it's cradled up against his chest. Christ will hold you. He will care for you. And gently lead those that are with young. So a reference to the pregnant, those who, who need care, those who need to be protected and preserved. The pregnant sheep would be especially vulnerable to attack. And yet, this Savior will care gently for them. He will provide all that they need. He will provide for you, and he has provided for you by his death and by his resurrection. Our epistle text, it's still an Advent text, but it doesn't have the same connection that the Old Testament and the Gospel readings share. Uh, that, again, prophetic word of John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord as he comes. Instead, the epistle text focuses on Christ's second coming. So this is from 2 Peter chapter 3, it's verses 8 through 14 that we will read. We're going to start out with a little bit of an introduction for those of you who aren't familiar with 2 Peter. This is written by Peter, somewhere 60 to 65 AD uh, is probably when it was written. Just a couple of years or even within a year of when Peter is going to be executed by the Roman Emperor Nero, which happens in 68 AD. So I guess this could even be 66 or 67 when this letter is written. He writes it to the five churches that are in Asia Minor. A threefold purpose, to encourage them to be godly in their living, to warn them against false teachers, and to share with them 
what we know about Christ's return. And that is what we're picking up on in our text, because that's what starts really with the beginning of chapter 3. And so we're jumping in midstream into this. It's only a three-chapter book, so when you finish the text that we have today, there's just another paragraph worth, another four verses, and the letter's finished. So we're going to read, we'll read this one in two parts. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, some words starting to jump out in the reading, I'm sure. We'll get to those. First, we start with the the note that Peter points out, the important thing for them to remember. So don't overlook. Pay attention to this. This one detail, this one fact. So this thing is true of God. What is that one detail, that one fact? One day to him is as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. How we view time in this world is not how God views time. Jesus said he was coming soon. We hear the word soon, and we think of something that's happening right away. If mom said dinner is going to be ready soon, you're thinking, okay, five, ten minutes. If your boss tells you that you're going to have a promotion soon, well, you know, maybe a couple months. So Jesus said, I will, I am coming soon. And the church has struggled because here we are, nearly 2,000 years after he said those words, and he's not back yet. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do not fall into the temptation that many Jewish people have. The Jewish people who do not recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, they're very divided today on their theology and their expectation of a Messiah. There are some that certainly are still waiting for a Messiah to come. There are others, however, who have written it off as something that will never happen. They no longer believe that a Messiah is coming for them, and they start to make it into a metaphor that has some kind of other meaning for them. Do not do this, brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not do this with Yahweh, with Jesus' return. Oh, he hasn't returned yet. It's been 2,000 years. He must not actually be coming. Maybe when Jesus said, I am coming soon, it refers to in the moment of our death that he comes for us and he takes us to be with him. Don't. Please don't. Trust in the Lord always. He has promised. He will do it. This text gets rid of the idea of what I was just sharing. Um, we'll get to that again, this destruction of the world that is coming. Instead, as we focus on this idea of time, remember that God is the one who created time. God is not bound by time. Time is really part of what his creation entails. In the six-day week of the creation, in Genesis 1, God invents even a system of management for us, a way that we can mark our days and our seasons and, and such, those things to God do not matter. He is not bound to our time. He exists above and outside of time. It is his servant, not the other way around. So Yahweh can act as he pleases. Jesus can return when the Father believes it is best. No one knows the day or the hour except for the Father. But he has promised. He is coming. And this text will, in the rest of this text, it will really 
continue to, to point that to us as a truth. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. What promise? I am coming soon. Jesus has promised that he will return, and this is certain. It is as certain as the fact that the sun rises in the morning. In fact, it's actually more certain than the idea that the sun rises in the morning, because on the day that Christ returns, there will be no longer any sunrise in the morning. That will go away. But Christ's return, that endures forever. The reality that that creates, the new paradise that you get to live in, endures forever. So he is not slow, as some count slowness, but he is patient. Specifically, he is very patient toward you. This is Peter, again, writing to the five churches in Asia Minor. But those words apply to us as well. The Lord is patient toward us. And this is a very good thing. He is very patient toward us. I reflect for a moment on how many times you have sinned already even this day, and yet God has chosen not to wipe you out, to destroy you for the sins as you deserve, but instead to show you his love and his mercy and to have done it even so fully as to lay down his own life for you. Our God is very patient with us. Even though we continue to rebel, we continue to reject him, we continue to sin against him again and again and again, and he forgives us again and again and again. The Lord is patient with us always. And then the reason is given for his patience, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The message that is seen consistently in Scripture, so an Old Testament example would be Ezekiel chapter 33. Um, the Lord does not desire the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from their evil way and live. That same kind of wording appears uh, also in chapter 18 of that book and a couple other places too, if I recall correctly. And then in 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The incredible, incredible truth of Jesus Christ for us, but that God wants everyone to know it. That God wants everyone to be saved. Jesus shed his blood for all people, not so that they could go on being sinners and perish forever, but so that they might live that they might be with him. Verse 10, the day of the Lord, so his second coming, the day when he does indeed come back, will come like a thief. That's also common language in the New Testament. Jesus speaks of it this way. Paul writes of it this way. Peter writes of it this way. It will come like a thief. You don't know when a thief is going to come. If you knew when the thief would break into your house, you would be ready. But you don't. The thief simply comes. The day of the Lord, we won't know when it's coming. It will simply come. When it comes, when the day of the Lord arrives, what's going to happen? The heavens will pass away with a roar. So, a loud sound. The heavens will pass away. The heavenly bodies, so the sun, the moon, the stars, will be burned up and dissolved. This is a very intense picture, and I don't I don't see any reason we should take it as a figure of speech. I mean, this seems like, again, in its context, this seems like something we ought to consider to be literal. There are other scripture passages like Isaiah 65, verse 17, Isaiah 66, verse 22, Revelation chapter 21, um, Matthew, it's either in chapter 24, chapter 25, 
in these places we learn that heaven and earth will pass away. And in some of those places, not the Matthew reference, but the rest of them, we learn that we will have a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we don't know how. We don't know the details of how that will come to be. Will God destroy this creation entirely because it has been so damaged and give us a new creation that has never tasted the flaw of our sin? That's a possibility. There's some language that seems to speak that way in Scripture. But the other possibility here is that God will actually take this creation, this heaven and earth as we know them now, and he will restore them. He will cleanse them. And that also has strong scriptural language to it um, as we think of Christ coming to restore all things. So I, I hesitate to try to go one way or the other on that. I simply know that we are promised a new heaven and a new earth. And that Christ is for us. So even the passing away of heaven and earth will not harm us. Because he is God, and he is in control, and he has us. As our Old Testament text said, he is carrying us in his bosom. He has us in his arms. The earth and the works done on it will be exposed. This is not a good thing. Uh, scripture elsewhere does speak of, of deeds that are done in darkness. Uh, this is John kind of language, both his epistles and his gospel text, that those who do evil deeds prefer to do them in the darkness uh, where their deeds cannot be seen. And then when, when the light shines, they scatter, they hide, they try to put on a, a good face. Addiction probably fits into this kind of a picture. Uh, those who are addicted to certain things, whether it's something like alcohol or, or pornography, they often do those things in the dark where they cannot be seen by others. They don't want it to be made known. They don't want it to be revealed. And yet on the last day, when Christ returns, everything will be exposed. There's nothing that can be hidden from the Lord. He knows all things already, but on that last day, we will stand before the judgment throne of God and have to give an account for all that we have done. For the Christian, we are thankful that we are in Christ. We are thankful that we have his forgiveness, because otherwise we would not be able to stand. We finish with verses 11 through 14 here. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, sorry, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Since, so verse 11, verse begins with the idea that because all of this that Peter has just said is true, because of that, you are to live like this. Because this heaven and this earth are perishing, because they in the end do not matter, how should you, the Christian, the, the one who gets to inhabit the new heaven and the new earth, how should you live your life here and now? And he tells you to do so in holiness and godliness. Holiness is perfection. Godliness is doing the things of God. God has told you, he has called you as his child to love him and to love your neighbor. He has called you to share the good news of Christ. These are the things that we are to do, not the sinful things that this world loves and cherishes, but the things of God. As we wait for his return and even hasten it, 
there's a big difference between waiting and hastening. You know, you wait for something, you're sitting around in the doctor's office waiting for them. You cannot hasten your doctor that day. It doesn't work. I mean, I guess you could try. But you just wait for however long. Now, we are called to hasten the coming of the day of God. How can we do that? Well, we do that in prayer. We do that in prayer, praying to the Lord as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. The prayer that Jesus taught us, both in Matthew chapter 6 and also in Luke's gospel account, Jesus teaches us to pray that the kingdom of the Lord would come, and he brought that kingdom into this world, and he is still bringing his kingdom to us, his reign, his glory over creation. We pray that it would come. So we do not just wait, we also, in a sense, actively pray for it. We want Christ to return. This will be a good day for the Christian, for the church. It is the prayer that the Bible almost ends with. It's almost, it's the second to last verse of scripture. The last verse ends up being that famous warning about not adding to the book or taking away from it. But Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, Jesus promises, reiterated, I am coming soon. And the church responds, amen, come Lord Jesus. A simple four word prayer, amen, Come, Lord Jesus. That prayer is on our lips each and every day as a Christian. If things are going well, we still pray it because it's going to be even better. If things are going poorly, we pray those words because it is our hope. If we are suffering, we pray those words because it is an end to our suffering. It is an end to the suffering of our brothers and sisters as well. As a pastor, when I deal with people who are are fairly sick in a hospital or who have lived in a nursing home for a long time, they often they often tell me they like to pray that God will take them, that they will die, so they don't have to endure the suffering any longer. And I I gently try to correct them to shift them away from that thinking. Well, it's true that if they die, they would get to be with their Lord, and and that is indeed a good thing. To live as Christ, to die as gain. I try to encourage them instead to pray the prayer of Scripture. Amen, come Lord Jesus. For if Christ returns today, you no longer have to live in that nursing home. You no longer have to lay in that hospital bed. Your suffering is put to an end, and the suffering of all creation is put to an end as well. It is the better prayer by far. And it is the prayer that every Christian of every age ought to pray. Whether you're three, two, two two-year-olds could say that simple prayer, or a hundred and two. That is the prayer that should be on our lips. The rest of the text in verses 12 and 13, really we've talked about already, the heavens will be dissolved Heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Verse 13, according to his promise, we are waiting. Christ has promised you a new heaven. Christ has promised you a new earth. We are waiting. And we continue to wait. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be a hundred years from now. It could be a thousand years from now. For the sake of the suffering and creation, I hope it's not a thousand years from now, but We don't know. We are called to live as though Christ will come back today. So how does that cause me to think about loving my neighbor? If I know that Christ is going to return tonight, how will I spend the rest of my day? Live that way. But on the other hand, we are also called to live as though we need to love our neighbor tomorrow as well. So how do we how do we prepare, how do we function in a way that allows us to go on caring for others in the days to come? So the Thessalonians, 
for example, as Paul wrote to them, they had to plant their crops. In case Jesus didn't come back in the next few weeks, they would need to harvest their crops so that people would have food to eat. So we live both ways. It's a tough kind of a paradox, but it is the paradigm in which we live. So verse 14, since we are waiting, we are diligent. So that we might be found by him at peace and without blemish. That really connects to a couple of things in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus said, When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? It's a bold challenge. The parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus speaks of the five who are ready and the five who are not ready when he returns. So a lot of good scriptural connections to make here. We are to be diligent. We are to be alert. We are to be awake. We are to be watchful. We are to be prepared. We are to expect Christ to return at any moment. I was tempted to put in an extra long pause in between readings here to make you think that you'd missed Christ's return. You won't miss Christ's return. Even the atheist won't miss the return of Christ. They will see it. They just won't be prepared. And it won't end well for them. But every eye will see Christ's return. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. Don't worry, you won't miss Christ's return. Just be awake. Be alert. Be ready. Our gospel text is from Mark chapter 1. It's verses 1 through 8. Now, this is year B of the three-year lectionary reading series, and it is the year that we focus on Mark's gospel. Primarily, working our way through Mark. Mark is shorter, so we're going to get some John spliced in uh, to fill in some gaps. We have two long periods of time where we go without Mark. And one of them actually starts immediately now. I mean, so after we read from Mark 1 this week, we go on a five-week break until we get Mark again. What is that? Baptism of our Lord Sunday in January? The first Sunday after Epiphany, which is always January 6th. So it's a, what is that? One, two, three, four... We have five, well, almost five weeks between Mark readings right here at the start of the year. And then the other big gap, which is a little longer, comes in the season of Easter. We have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine weeks in a row where we're reading not out of Mark, but primarily out of John. There's a couple of Luke's in there, but mostly John. For the rest of the year, by and large, we'll be in Mark together. So I thought with this being our introduction to Mark, I would introduce you to Mark. You have four gospel texts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of them are considered synoptic, which is another way of saying same or similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you look at those three gospels, you're going to see so many similarities between them. They share the same accounts that they, they use. Um, it's, it's to the point with their similarities that it's argued by many scholars that they used each other's writings to write their own. Now, I don't think that's necessary to reach that conclusion. If the Holy Spirit has truly inspired God's word, as we believe as Christians that he did, then... There's no need for a conclusion like that. There are other scholars who think that there's some other source, whether it was written or oral, that the three of them shared in common and they were able to write their works from. And they call that source Q. There is no evidence for Q at all. 
So these three gospel accounts are very similar to one another. And then John, which is, is going to be written much later. So Matthew, Mark, Luke are written. Sometimes you'll hear the 40s, sometimes the 50s, sometimes the 60s AD. So it's harder to pin them down. I think most conservative theologians probably put them in the 50s, which would put them a good 20 years after Jesus. After his resurrection. But John, John's is a whole 40 years later than that. John doesn't write until the 90s, where he writes Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Gospel of John. And I don't know which order he writes those five books in. But he doesn't begin to even write until in his old age he's exiled to the island of Patmos. And it's there that he at least writes the book of Revelation. When he returns, he ends up writing, he ends up living in Ephesus where he may have written other things as well. So John is able to focus differently because the church has been functioning as a church body, as a, as a family of Christ for at least four decades with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So they don't need the same thing. So John's able to take a different approach with his gospel. The Spirit inspires him to take this different approach. So what about Mark? Well, Matthew and John are two of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Mark and Luke are not. Mark and Luke are both traveling companions of the apostles. Luke is a physician, a doctor, uh, who traveled along with Paul for a while. Mark also known as John Mark in Scripture. May have been cousin of Barnabas, traveled with Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas end up having a falling out over Mark. When you look at Acts chapter 15, verses 37 to 39, it sounds like Mark had, on a previous journey, decided to leave them uh, and go home. So they felt abandoned by that. Paul did especially. And so Paul no longer wants to take Mark on these journeys. But Barnabas wants to, and so they get in, they get into a quarrel over it and decide to split ways. Barnabas goes one way and takes Mark with him. Paul goes a different direction. It's possible Mark was also a traveling companion to Peter. Um, we see Peter in the end of First Peter in chapter five, identify that he's sending greetings from Mark, who he calls his son. That could mean that Peter actually had a son and named him Mark, or it could be a reference to this same Mark that we're talking about today, uh, that Peter was a spiritual father to him, and that would have that would certainly indicate they spent a good amount of time together. Now, the church historically has, has believed and held that Mark travels down to Africa and is the one who really, aside from the Ethiopian eunuch from the book of Acts who goes to Ethiopia, that Mark is the one who goes and ends up setting up a church in Alexandria, which becomes, uh, which is northern Egyptish, becomes really a, a center, center for Christianity for a while within the church. So Mark has been traditionally accredited with that. He dies in that city. Um, again, tradition holds that he dies in that city, that he's martyred there, I think in the 70s by citizens of Alexandria who are fed up with him trying to get them to give up their idols and believe in this Jesus guy. So Mark writes this book, and Mark's gospel is really, it's action-packed. It's very quick-moving. He loves the word immediately. Uh, the word immediately shows up in the ESV Bible 82 times, 35 of them, so nearly half are in Mark's book alone. And when you think that Mark's writing is 16 chapters out of a good 1,100-something chapters, I mean, that's that's saying something. Mark loves this word. It keeps the, the story flowing. It keeps the story moving. You don't want to put it down because who wants to stop reading a book when you're reading about what immediately happened next? There's no good pause points. You just keep going. That has been used to argue that maybe he's writing this to the Romans. Uh, that they would hear the gospel of Jesus and believe. That's a pretty strong argument. The fast pace of Roman society and life um, would have encouraged or or been asking for 
a more action-packed kind of book. It's a possibility. It's theories of, of why Mark did what Mark did. Uh, we know it's inspired, though, by the Holy Scripture, so we go with that. We're going to read this text in two chunks, so verses 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel is an old English word that means good news. In Greek, it is the euangelizo. Um, you is the kind of good phrase. And angelos, which also means angel, is a message. Angels are messengers. So this is the good message. It's the good word. It's the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Now, very specifically here, Mark identifies Jesus Christ in this opening verse as the Son of God. That is an important and a very rare phrase in the book. It's obviously important, the title of Christ, that he is the Son of God that matters to us. If he's not the Son of God, well then, just throw the gospel out. That's not true anymore. But what makes this rare is that Mark, Mark only puts that title in the mouth of one man in his entire book, and it comes at the very end. But before we get to that, it does happen twice in between. Chapter 3, verse 11, and chapter 5, verse 7, the Son of God title is used, not by men, but by demons. So, the, the spiritual powers of darkness in this world, they know who Jesus is. But men don't. The disciples don't even fully realize it yet. And this again gets at that idea that I suggested before, that maybe Mark is writing this to the Romans, because the only person who gets to say the words is the centurion at the foot of the cross. When he sees Christ die, and he sees everything that happens in the moment of Christ's death, he declares, truly, this man was the Son of God. That's chapter 15, verse 39. That is a profound profound moment and a literary feature of Mark's writing here that we don't want to miss. He puts it in the mouth of a Roman. So again, encouragement to think that this text is for the Romans to read because that would give them, that would, that would give weight to the credibility, it would give weight to why they should listen to this and why it should be important to them. Hey, this, this ranking Roman official, this soldier who's in charge of a hundred men, he gets it. Maybe, maybe there's something to this. Next, Mark is going to begin with a quotation from the prophets. And I say prophets because, he, you know, verse 2 mentions it's written in Isaiah. Indeed it is. I mean, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 is in play here from our Old Testament reading. That's why these two are paired together about John the Baptist proclaiming in the wilderness. But the first part, the end of verse 2, fits more. It's, I mean, it fits better with Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. So that's why I said prophets instead of just prophet. Mark is quoting from Isaiah, but he's also likely quoting Malachi here as well. Uh, two different Old Testament prophecies that fit together because they were about the same thing. God is going to send his messenger before your face. In other words, you can't miss it. You know, if somebody sticks something in your face, you're going to see it. You're going to know it. You're, you're not going to miss it. It's just there. That's the picture we get here as well. And then, I mean, we've talked about this already in the Old Testament reading of what John the Baptist will do. He will cry out. He will prepare the way of Yahweh. He will make it so people can see their Savior. And that's what we're going to get in the second part of the text, verses 4 through 8. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea, Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him 
and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John appears. That answers the question of who the messenger was going to be. Uh, Mark jumps right into it immediately. He brings up John. And John's baptizing. Now, the scriptures do identify for us that John's baptism is not the same as Jesus' baptism or the baptism of the church today, which is Jesus' baptism. Uh, John's baptism is for the purpose of repentance, which is good. Um, but in a sense, we'll get to that here in just a moment. I should say that you can see this difference drawn out by, well, I guess it's Luke as he writes Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. But I think it's Paul that's involved in the conversation there as you read the text. The baptisms are different. John's baptism does have repentance and forgiveness in mind. But Jesus' baptism actually involves the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the creating of faith, the gift of life, which is more than John's baptism accomplished. So in Jewish culture at this time, they were, they were doing baptisms. Uh, if a Gentile was to convert to Judaism, they must be circumcised, they must be ritually cleansed, baptism, and then they would give an offering, a sacrifice. So John is picking up on this, and he's calling even the Jews to be baptized, that they must repent, that they must be converted away from what they currently have believed and lived. They must be made clean. We know that we are made clean. Um, Revelation uses that language in the blood of the Lamb. All the country of Judea, all Jerusalem going out to him. So it speaks of his popularity. Um, lots of people wanted to hear the words of this person that they believed was a prophet from God. And, and believing that, they would be right. Um, it's part of what causes Herod such concern about handling John and in the time that comes. They go out to him to be baptized in the Jordan River. Jesus will also soon. They confess their sins. This is good. And we get a little of John's appearance, clothed in camel's hair, leather belt, ate locusts and wild honey. So he's he's in the wilderness. He's given up the, the creaturely comforts of life. He's wearing uh, what you have to picture as an uncomfortable and itchy garment. Uh, Elijah the prophet wore this kind of clothing, which is interesting. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, God promised that Elijah would return before the day of the Lord. Uh, so John the Baptist is going to be that Elijah. Jesus himself will speak of him that way. It's a functional thing. It's not that Elijah has been reincarnated or something, but John the Baptist is fulfilling the role of the prophet. He's fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy, uh, pointing people to their Savior. Um, the locusts and wild honey, again, just giving up the comforts of this world, this life that others would have been enjoying themselves. Then verse 7, he begins to preach. And his preaching here is different than what we read first in Matthew. Matthew's first statement from him is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or has come near. Here, his immediate first thing is to teach about Christ. That Christ is coming. Um, that Christ is mightier than John is. John is not worthy. It's a big word. He's not worthy to undo the sandals of Christ. And that's huge. I mean, feet were filthy, dirty things, often bloody from traveling on dirt roads. And when that happens, they get infected. They didn't have good footwear. So their shoes would be falling apart. They'd be filthy things. And, and John is saying, I'm not even worthy to touch those, those filthy things that will be on his feet. I, that's, a, that's a very humble posture, which is good. Uh, and that's the posture that the Christian is to have as well. Uh, he recognizes who his Savior is. And he recognizes there is a difference between their baptisms. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Which again, 
points us to that gift of faith. The Spirit is the one who creates faith in the heart of man. And so Christ's baptism will do that. That's what the church believes about baptism to this day. Um, the majority of Christians, at least, not all churches teach the same about baptism. Um, but in the Lutheran church body, as well as others, including the Roman Catholic Church, was about half the world, well, half the world's Christians. We believe that in baptism, the Holy Spirit grants faith if the individual did not already have faith from hearing the word. So it is a gift. It also brings forgiveness, as John's baptism did, but it is a greater gift. Uh, it is a much more profound gift because the, the one who gave it was that much greater himself.